0: Hello, welcome back to our 2017 educational webinar series. I'm Dr. Jill Brooks, Senior Director of Education for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution Tailored to your business—a hospital, a hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility—as part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We continue our March webinars focusing on the topic of contracts and services. We are so pleased to have Matt Jordoff of Choice Med Waste, one of our partners, presenting today on understanding your medical waste. Matt is a graduate of the University of Delaware with degrees in finance and operations management, entrepreneurial studies, and international business. His background includes studying in Switzerland, Hong Kong, and Australia. Matt began his career in the banking industry. His goal has always been to be an entrepreneur with the mindset of putting the customer first. Throughout high school and college, Matt worked for his father, Bruce, and his solid waste company, and subsequently joined his father's business. Choice Med Waste is a licensed medical waste disposal company serving all of Delaware, the eastern shore of Maryland, and southeastern Pennsylvania. Their goal is to educate their customers on anything relating to regulated medical waste and how it should be safely packaged and disposed of. Choice Med Waste is a member of the National Waste and Recycling Association along with the Healthcare Waste Institute. The Healthcare Waste Institute comments on proposed regulations and works alongside groups like the Department of Transportation, Center for Disease Control, and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Their goal is to ensure the safe disposal of biohazard waste and to be at the forefront of new regulations affecting the industry. A copy of the handout is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions during the presentation uh, and we will address them at the end. Your Paycom CEU certificate will be emailed to you directly from Paycom following the broadcast. It takes a few days. There is no need to request it. Additional CEU opportunities will also be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. Go ahead, Matt.
1: All right. Thank you very much, Jill. So glad to be here. Thanks, everyone, for taking the time out of your day to learn a little bit more about your medical waste and how to dispose of it properly, how to package it, and some of the regulations. So as you stated, uh, here at Choice Med Waste, we specialize in knowing everything there is to know about medical waste. So what we're going to talk about today is we'll give you a little um, overview of the industry history. We're going to talk about what agencies our company works with and the industry itself is involved with, the different types of waste. We'll go over the Delaware, Pennsylvania, Maryland regulations. We're going to go over some of the Ebola concerns from the Ebola crisis, since that was one of the most recent headliners that involved a lot of medical waste questions. We're going to go over the packaging and handling of your medical waste, and we're going to go over the new EPA regulations and any medical waste contracts that you might be getting sent, have questions about, and what you should be looking for. So the medical waste industry itself, it's actually a very young industry compared to the solid waste, um, also known as just the trash business that your everyday trash and recycling companies. Um, the regulations for medical waste only came out actually in the mid-80s, which is, Kind of scary to think about, but it's mostly because the um, solid waste actually was regulated in the 50s and 60s due to a lot of the, um, unfortunately, the mafia and the Bob um, instances that came up with how they were laundering money through trash companies. Mid-80s came around and there was a lot of questions on how are we affecting the environment, how are these specialized waste supposed to be disposed of, and that's where medical waste really became at the forefront. The tough part about medical waste is um, it's different per state, so it can be different on how to handle certain types of waste, how you package the waste, how you dispose of the waste, how to manifest and track the waste, and sometimes they even qualify generators differently. A lot of states break them down into small quantity generators versus large quantity generators, and that gives you different regulations to follow um, depending on the amount of waste you're generating, usually monthly. And these regulations are usually found under your hazardous or solid waste regulations per state, which can be confusing because regulated medical waste is actually neither of those. You have your hazardous waste, which are permitted by hazardous waste companies, and your solid waste is your trash and recycling, who um, don't have to follow anything under the hazardous waste or biohazard labels. Medical waste is its own type of waste. It's not as dangerous as hazardous, but it's a little more dangerous than solid waste. So there's a fine little gray area, And as the industry grows, we'll see new medical waste regulations come out that are specific um, to your biohazard and right bag waste, and we'll go into that a little further. So now we're going to go over some of the agencies involved in uh, medical waste regulations. You obviously have the Center for Disease and Control. CDC is the authority over how to classify certain diseases. They can be set in different classes, which varies depending on how hard they are to kill, how easy they can be transmitted, and how deadly they are um, to humans. That's pretty much their breakdown. Uh, the EPA rules on pharmaceutical disposal uh, for our industry. They can also help in dis- determining um, what diseases, uh, what categories diseases fall into with the CDC. The Department of Transportation or DOT. They regulate packaging. They give a broad standard um, of how you should be packaging medical waste. They let you know the pretty much the box type, the crush, um, the crush speculations for the cardboard boxes how the red bags should be in them, et cetera. And I'm sure everyone on here knows about the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, which we'll get into a little more on the next slide. Um, they deal with the safety requirements for people working around infectious diseases. Uh, we'll talk about a li- little bit more about that. And as we stated, each state has their own um, specific environmental organization. So in Delaware, where we're based, it's the Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Control, or DENREC. In um, Pennsylvania, it's DEP. And in Maryland, it's MDE, Maryland Department of the Environment. So OSHA, um, the main thing we're involved with OSHA is the global pathogen training. Which obviously, if you're with first self compliant clients, you're pretty much covered. Uh, they also are, they changed the MSDS sheets to SDS, which I know everyone on the phone is definitely compliant with by now. Um, they focus on PPE for our drivers and for your staff because the most dangerous object that everyone is dealing with is sharps. Uh, getting it exposed to the needles, making sure they're in the right packaging, and making sure they're handled correctly is probably the most hot topic when we speak to clients. So we're going to do a quick poll real quick. Um, it should pop up on your screen. Asking about if you know the types of waste that we're going to get into, do you know exactly what types of waste you're generating? And I'll give everyone a few minutes to respond on that. Looking pretty good here, 75% yes so far. All right, so this is pretty good. We have over above 80% of people know what they're generating. We have a little bit around 14% that's saying maybe they know what they're generating, and around 6% to 8% that are saying they're not exactly sure what they're generating. So what we're looking to do is kind of educate um, everyone on what types of waste they're currently generating, how they need to be disposed of, and how you should be looking to clarify what types of waste you're generating and how you should talk to your hauler about it. So these are the main types of waste that we deal with with health care providers. We're going to go into each one, but first we're going to see how each one should be disposed of. So everything in red must be incinerated in most states. As I said, each state has specific regulations um, that can uh, basically break down even further. Hey, you know what, we we accept autoclaving certain waste in this state, but the next state might say, no, this all needs to be incinerated. Um, the majority of states, the pathological, chemotherapy, non-hazardous pharmaceuticals, hazardous pharmaceuticals, controlled controlled substances, and hazardous materials, we're all going to be incinerated. That's going to be the main disposal method for all of them. Now, um, in Maryland, there is actually a variance that you can get with some disposal facilities that they will take some pathological and chemotherapy waste, but the majority of customers and the majority of haulers would rather have it incinerated just because it's simply safer. So now we're going to um, go into uh, different types of waste a little more. So your pathological waste is sometimes called anatomical waste. It's pretty much um, small body parts of humans or animals um, that's used for testing, and the organs would also fall in this category. Uh, usually this is sent for incineration. I would say about 90% of the time this needs to be incinerated. Um, and if I'll go back a little bit and make sure everyone understands the two different main methods of disposing of medical waste. You have autoclave, which some of you might have small autoclaves in your facilities. This is with high-pressured steam, um, and you're locking carts of medical waste into a long, long med- metal cylinder, and they pump all the steam in there at a high pressure. It pops all the sharps containers. It pops all the vials open, and at this high temperature, it sterilizes everything. Now, incineration, exactly what you're thinking of. You're putting the entire box in and it's going to burn it all, which is why most medical waste boxes are made of cardboard, so that way no one's opening them and have, getting, uh, putting themselves in risk for getting stuck with a needle or getting any waste on them. You just throw the entire cardboard box in there, and it goes for incineration. So the main reason why everyone wants to incinerate pathological waste, because an autoclave, we like to compare it as like microwaving or steaming something, and not many customers or even waste providers really want any, Animals or body parts being microwaved or steamed is just not safe and not pretty. So, with your pathological waste, you must be marking this specifically on shipping papers and boxes. So, when you're, when if you have pathological waste in your office, you make sure when the, you are signing the manifest or the shipping papers, as they're called, we, uh, you have to make sure that it's labeled as pathological waste. So the, the hauler knows that this needs to be sent for incineration. Chemotherapy waste. There's two different main types of chemotherapy waste: trace versus bulk. Um, trace chemotherapy waste is where you have limited amounts of drugs left in the bags, vials, or IV tubes. This is all treated as regulated medical waste, and it's usually marked in the yellow containers. Bulk chemotherapy waste deals with containers that are not considered empty or PPE that is visibly contaminated with chemotherapy drugs. If you have full bags or containers of chemotherapy drugs, usually they can be taken back by your manufacturers and reused. This way, you don't have to dispose of them as hazardous waste. There's a certain limit once you get into bulk chemotherapy drugs that it does become a hazardous substance, and this all applies to Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Maryland. That uh, usually these are all required for incineration. That's what most customers and haulers are doing. As I stated, Maryland does have a variance for their autoclave to uh, take trace chemotherapy in it, um, but most haulers are going to incinerate it. So regulated medical waste. There's about 20 different names for this. Um, It's also known as infectious waste, just medical waste, biological waste, red bag waste, hospital waste, standard medical waste, so a lot of different names for it, but um, this is what most customers are generating. Uh, This is what you see in the red bags in the offices, this is most of your sharps, anything covered in blood or possible infectious diseases. Um, Most common uh, RMW, as we call it, is your sharps container. Non-hazardous pharmaceuticals, this is a little bit of a gray area that the EPA is trying to um, firm up, but the majority of medications fall into this category. Currently everything of this must be incinerated in Delaware. Most customers that are generating any pharmaceutical waste um, are going to ask for it to be incinerated as well. However, states like Pennsylvania, technically pharmaceutical waste is not considered a medical waste or even a hazardous substance. So, by technical Technically speaking, the laws in Pennsylvania, you could actually landfill this waste just like normal trash. Now, I would not recommend that for anyone's practice because if these pharmaceuticals somehow make it into a water system, somehow someone gets the wrong hands of them, you're still going to be liable for them. So, incineration is the best best method of this. Autoclaving pharmaceuticals really doesn't do anything. You're steaming pills and liquid for 42 minutes to an hour, depending on the temperatures, and it's not really breaking them down. Incineration is the main method of breaking down fully. Um, If non-hazardous pharmaceuticals are being placed in a medical waste box, then all of it must be incinerated. It needs to be treated as the most, um, you can call it most hazardous substance, even though it's not considered a hazardous waste. The more more dangerous the item is, the whole box needs to be treated as that. Most companies are going to make you separate your pharmaceuticals from your regulated medical waste. This is because incineration rates cost a lot more than just your um, autoclave waste. So uh, in order to keep costs down for you, your hauler will most likely be asking you, hey, can you separate your pharmaceuticals into a different container? You might fill that up once, twice, three times a year while you might have medical waste pickups every week or every four, every four weeks, every quarter. This will save you money, it saves your hauler money, puts everyone on the same page. Now we have our hazardous pharmaceuticals, and unfortunately there's no permanent list of all the hazardous pharmaceuticals, there is a couple lists out there that list what falls under um, the Resource Conservation Recovery Act, also known as RCRA. But the best way to tell if um, pharmaceutical is hazardous or not is usually to look at the SDS sheet. If you look at your SDS sheet and you look under the transportation section, it can either have a specific hazardous classification that it needs to follow or specific DOT numbers that it has to be transported under. And it doesn't say that it's regulated under any specific DOT numbers then usually you're good to consider that a non-hazardous pharmaceutical, and your medical waste hauler can take it. If it is a hazardous pharmaceutical, these have to be sent for ha- sent to hazardous waste incinerators and therefore separated from all your other waste. It also needs to be hauled by someone with a special uh, permit to handle hazardous waste materials. The hazardous waste incinerators actually burn at higher temperatures, so they're taking care of a little more... Um, hard to kill uh, substances, so that's why there's different regulations for those hazardous waste incinerators besides medical waste incinerators. And unfortunately the hazardous disposal side of things is super, super expensive, so the the goal is to eliminate a lot of your hazardous waste, and uh, some of that we'll talk about in the exception processes that we'll talk about what waste could not be considered hazardous um, if it's not in your practice. So controlled substances. These are narcotics controlled by and monitored by the DEA. Um, there's only a very few companies that handle this type of waste. And if your one of your practices is handling DEA controlled substances, you should be registered with the DEA in order to generate or handle these um, items. The most easiest way to dispose of them is there are mailback programs out there which we can refer you to or you can ask your local hauler what they're using of. Um, but the easiest way is to Get one of the mailmark programs and identify exactly what types of controlled substance you have are disposing of. The hardest part is nailing down the exact amounts which you're disposing of, because when you're mailing these out, it has to be very specific to how many of, the, of this drug, how many of that drug, so when the company gets it and brings it back, they know which how much they're supposed to be tracking and if any if there was any diversion from when you sent it to when they're getting it. Um, amalgam. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. It's mainly obviously for dentists. It comes in sem- separators and waste containers. This is also has amalg- there's amalgam mail-back programs, which make this very, very easy to dispose of. They should not be being mixed with your regulated medical waste. I repeat, they should not be going in your medical waste containers. The metal components are actually captured and they're reused in the industry, while the mercury is safely kept out of the environment. Um, we can always refer you to um, our company, Medentex, that we use uh, for all of our dentists. And they're very, very easy to use. And you can actually get cheaper prices through most haulers because uh, we get um, kind of their manufacturer deals instead of their um, consumer prices. So you might be actually be able to save money if you ask your hauler, hey, can you partner with an amalgam disposal company like we have? And we'll get you better prices on these nailback containers for uh, any dentist that needs to dispose of their amalgams, their teeth with amalgam on them, anything like that they take care of. So now we're going into the hazardous materials. Infectious waste is not hazardous waste. I know it has the biohazard symbol on everything, but it is not considered a hazardous waste. The hazardous pharmaceuticals do fall under this category, the non-hazardous pharmaceuticals do not. So these materials, I mean, the hazardous materials range from anything from the paint, batteries, fluorescent bulbs, and chemicals. but Each one needs to be marked with a specific um, UN hazard class label that you see in the bottom right there, and that's when you see driving down the road, the trucks are placarded, um, they have certain materials on them that can't be mixed together, which is why it is a little more expensive to dispose of. So exceptions to medical waste. Um, Waste generated from self-home care. Um, One good way to reduce the the waste is um, if people are generating some of this waste at home, um, don't have your practices be taking waste for them. Waste generation from self-home care is is outside of all of these regulations. So we have customers, we just had a customer call, to, or not a customer, someone called today asking, hey, we have a bunch of uh, needles to dispose of from my um, diabetic uncle, what do we do with them? So that, uh, I would love to be able to take them, but we are not permitted to be taking anything from consumers. It should all. Our business model is all business to business. That's why we work with only only doctors and people who actually um, have either generator numbers or have been trained on how to dispose of these, these things. Um, ash regis- regis- residue from incineration waste is now not contaminated anymore. Uh, we'll talk about, a little bit more about that in the Ebola slide. Any specimens or biological fluids sent for testing to labs. So that's why if you're sending things out, Uh, to labs, they don't need medical waste permit numbers, because until it's tested, that it's not considered medical waste. Uh, Reusable containers, they're not considered uh, medical waste as long as they're cleaned properly. If you are using a hauler that is giving you reusable containers for your sharps, for your medical waste, anything like that, they should be able to provide you with a cleaning protocol on how they're cleaning their... um, their cans and their sharps containers, and they should be able to provide that to you just to make sure that they're following all the necessary precautions to make sure that when they're giving you a new can, it is perfectly clean and there is no residue left in it. Food waste that is not pathogenic to humans, only through direct ingestion that is not considered um, um, hazardous or medical waste. Biological liquid directly discharged in the wastewater treatment systems. A lot of people don't realize that, but if you look at uh, funeral homes, when they're um, getting people ready for funerals, that's going right into the wastewater treatment systems. That's going right down the drain. And that is um, still legal because it gets so diluted. Soiled diapers, we do get calls about that all the time. Please just throw them away. They are not considered medical waste. Um, and once again, I stated in the mixture of materials will be treated as the most dangerous individual component. So if you have one small hazardous waste substance in an entire medical waste container, that entire medical waste container needs to be treated as that hazardous waste substance. So here's some of the Delaware regulations. Um, pathological and cumulative waste must be incinerated uh, at room temperature. You're allowed to have, have the waste sit in 14 days unless it starts to become harmful to the facility personnel or public. If you have a freezer, you can store it up to 90 days. Sharps have to be in approved containers, but they have no time limit. So we know a lot of uh, smaller practices that have sharps containers on the wall. They might not use sharps all the time. There's no time limit to keep a sharps on the wall and wait until you fill it up. Any fluid greater than 20 cubic centimeters, which is actually a small amount, or chemotherapy liquids, they need to be in containers that are brake resistant, tightly lidded, lidded, and double-bagged. So this is reducing the risk of leakage when it gets on the truck. Um, In Delaware, we have uh, each box must have regulated medical waste written on it, a biohazard symbol, the company emergency contact information, and what we call an IWG number. In Delaware, as in some states—not all of them—they have um, generator numbers where each client needs to apply with the state. Doesn't cost anything, but the state likes to keep track of who's generating waste. And at the end of the year, there's always a report that goes out to the state saying how much we picked up from each customer, where it's going, and how we're disposing of it. And all your chemotherapy, pathological, and pharmaceutical waste should be labeled in specific boxes. They need to have either—I mean, it can be as simple as writing a sharpie on "Hey." medications in this box, or you can actually have labels. We give our customers labels that have incineration on them, so we know that which boxes must be incinerated. So for generators, you can't store the waste for longer than 14 days in Delaware once the box is full. Um, They had qualified generators to two different uh, sizes in Delaware. You have small quantity generators, which is less than 50 pounds per month, and exempt from any of the storage time requirements. Now, this 50 pounds per month is any month. On an average, if you generated 60 pounds in one month, then you're technically uh, considered a large quantity generator, even if you generated zero pounds the rest of the year. If you are over 50 pounds in any month, then you're now considered a large quantity generator. And this also means you have to fill out an annual report. So just make sure in your state what type of generator you fall under. They do break them down in some states. Um, Some states, they don't. Reusable containers in Delaware, they can be used but they need to be washed according to the DENREC approved decontamination procedure. Each state usually has wash protocols. This is where you can really ask your hauler to make sure they're on their game and confirm that they're not bringing dirty containers back into your office. Some states say disposable containers can even be reused um, as long as waste is separated from the box. Do not recommend this. Um, Some states just say, hey, this is clean as long as we look in there and there's no remaining residue. Uh, we, if, if your hall is following those rules, we highly suggest that you ask them that they need to have a waste, that they need to have a, a wash treatment system, no matter what. Um, in Delaware, they should have a separate storage area. We like to tell this for most of our um, customers that you should be storing your waste in a separate area in a closet um, outside of the patient's view, uh, outside of patient rooms. And in Delaware, there is actually a law that it needs to have a separate room with a biohazard symbol on it. Transporters need to have a Delaware Waste Permit and proper insurance. Uh, this also is great for protection for you. If you if you have a hauler that is a local hauler and you're kind of a little hesitant to go with the smaller guy rather than a national company, ask. Hey, can I see your permits? Hey, can I see your insurance? Can you give me a certificate of insurance? We have customers ask us that probably once a month. It's no problem at all. It's not insulting. We're happy to provide it. We want to give you the least amount of stress as possible. And all generators should have shipping papers filled out for each pickup. You should be keeping them for three years at a minimum. It's going to identify how much waste they picked up, the types of waste they picked up. It's going to identify the transporter picking it up. It's also going to identify where the the disposal facility is and their contact information. It'll have the dates and it'll have the signatures. You must have a signature and a printed version of the name. It needs to have both on there. So let's move into the Pennsylvania regulations. pathological and chemotherapy waste must be incinerated 72 hours in Pennsylvania. So as you can see it's quite different from the 14 days in Delaware. So um, you only have three days uh, unless it starts to smell or attract bugs and it's got to be done that day. If you refrigerate it seven days, freezer 30 days. It's got the same requirement any fluids greater than 20 cubic centimeters need to be in those break resistant tightly loaded double bagged containers. Um, it's got the same requirements for the box, regulated medical waste, has a symbol, date package, and generator details on the box. Chemotherapy should only be labeled, and it should be um, in the yellow containers. So for generators, um, you actually cannot store uh, waste longer than 30 days once the box is full MPA Reusable containers can also be used in the state, but need to be washed according to the pre-approved decontam- decontamination procedures. Uh, again, disposable containers could be reused. If the waste is separated from the box, we still do not recommend that. In Pennsylvania, there's also a random regulation in there that you should not be using any chutes to dispose of your regulated medical waste. So if your suite is on the 44, and we have not seen this yet, but I guess it happened at one point, you should not be using garbage chutes to throw your sharps container, the medical waste, um, red bags down into a larger medical waste container. Obviously, the sharps containers can pop open. Shops will be exposed, and it provides a risk for the hauler and anybody in um, maintenance of the facility that's working down that there. Transporters must have the EPA waste permit and proper insurance, same thing. And all generators must have the exact same shipping papers filled out. And this is where it kind of varies because Maryland regula- regulations, um, there's not much in there, unfortunately, and I'm sure that will be changing soon. But it tells you to keep records of the shipping papers for three years. Uh, the transporter should have special, special permits from the Maryland Department of the Environment, and most of the regulations actually focus on classifying waste types and transporter disposal facilities. Um, so they're they're heavily regulated on autoclaves. There's an incinerator down in Maryland and Baltimore that most of the East Coast uses, and that's where a lot of the regulations come into play. The generators actually don't have many regulations to follow, but as a rule of thumb, um, usually most of the states have the standard, dispose of all the pathological, chemotherapy, and pharmaceuticals be incinerated, and DOT requires all the boxes to be labeled properly with all the correct signs. So um, you'll probably see the standard logistical procedures be the exact same in Maryland as a state that's heavily regulated. Better, safe, better be safe than sorry. So the Ebola concerns, um, that was a big, big thing for our industry. And really put a focus on medical waste and how we're disposing of certain diseases. Uh, as most of you know, the Ebola scare was a large result of the media. The um, virus is actually very easy, or the disease is very easy to destroy. Um, so, DOT came out with special exemption permits that were granted. Uh, anyone that anyone as small as us to as large as a national company could could apply for these. So, don't be scared when someone says that hey, we're permitted for Ebola and they're not. Anyone can get that exemption permit, especially in a situation where there was a crisis and they needed to move the waste quickly and get it taken care of. A Story I like to tell is that there was always with the Ebola concern. There's a large problem with CDC and landfills. No one wanted to take ownership, saying that incineration killed the Ebola. Killed Ebola. So um, Stericycle was actually the company taking it, and they took it from the major hospitals. They took it to an incinerator and. The ash was then loaded up, as it always is, into a tractor trailer and headed for a landfill. Well, CNN got word that they followed them with a helicopter to see where they were taking this ash, and um, once it made headline news, you have governors and mayors blocking this uh, 18-wheeler from going into landfills or even crossing state lines. So at one point, there was a police escort of this sterilized, decontaminated, just normal ash, doesn't have any disease in it, going through and around the state until it was uh, finally allowed to dispose of the landfill down in Texas. Um, so it's a little bit crazy out, out there uh, for these new diseases popping up and how we should be destroying them. As Jill mentioned, we're part of the Healthcare Waste Institute, and we actually are currently working with um, some of the larger hospitals and the CDC in coming out with a procedure for Class A infectious diseases. And they actually did just publish something recently, uh, which if people have more uh, questions about it, I can get to you on how generators should be handling it and how transporters should be handling it and how the public should view, view this waste once it's been treated. Um, and As I want to stress again, there's no such thing as Ebola certified haulers. Anyone can get this special permit. Um, it is a quick and easy turnaround just because if crises like this come up, the goal is to have this waste treated as quickly as possible so it does not sit around. Packaging and handling um, is all controlled by DOT, as most of you know, sharps must be placed in approved sharps containers, disposable and reusable. So the answer to that question about home-use sharps from a diabetic, what we'll usually tell them is if you if they have the money, we always recommend going, I mean, you can go on Amazon, you can probably go on Target and find uh, sharps containers for sale for consumers. If they can place them in there, great. What they'll do after that is put it right in the trash can. Most people don't want to spend the money on these uh, sharps containers. So what we'll recommend is you use uh, rigid orange juice bottles. You can use coffee tins. And you'll snap the needle off and put it in there. And then close that, seal that lid. Usually put tape on it so it doesn't pop open. And just make sure those are going in the trash can, not recycling. Big issue these days with uh, home use needle, home. Use of the needles and disposing of them is people put them in milk jugs or these orange juice containers, which is great, but then they recycle them. So now, when it comes to the recycle sort, it's all hand recycled, all hand sorted at the end of the recycling cycle, and they're popping up and people are getting stuck. So we always ask them: make sure you're throwing it away. Do not recycle it once you um, have your needles in one of these tin cans or orange juice bottles or any other plastic rigid container that has a lid on it. Um, As you see in the right picture, um, the medical waste boxes, those are your standard 30-gallon medical waste cardboard boxes that I'm assuming most people are using. Uh, The DOT is regulating how they should be packaged. You must have a red bag in it. We had a few customers that are putting trash bags in it and using them. It must be a red bag. The red bag has the biohazard symbol. usually has danger in it, written a few times in English and in Spanish. The box must be taped on both ends. Usually the requirement is 2-inch poly tape, which is your standard tape that fits in a nice tape gun. Um, It should be taped on the bottom and it should be taped on the top. As you see in that picture, the box is not, I'm not sure how you would call it, but it's not folded over by having them overlap each other. It's perfectly flat, and then you have one tape line across the top. That is technically how it should be sealed every single time, including on the bottom. The weight of each box really depends on how uh, the specifications that your company is purchasing their cardboard box at. If you flip them over, there is usually specs on the bottom that say what it's rated for and crush test for. Usually you want to keep these under 50 to 55 pounds. Um, Ideally, we like to tell our customers shoot for 40 because it usually ends up a little higher and then you're still under the 50 to 55 pounds. But that really depends on the box and your current hauler. You can have nothing puncturing the box. Um, The box should be completely shut perfectly. Um, There shouldn't be any bulging or anything. Uh, Nothing leaking from the box. We've had had a couple customers um, that have some wet material in there, and the box does start to leak. It's pretty easy to tell when it leaks. Cardboard changes a different color when uh, it starts soaking up any liquids. So what we'll do then is we'll break down the entire box, pull the bag out, and we'll put it actually in another bag. The easiest way to prevent leaking is to double, triple, quadruple bag things. If you think you have some wet liquid in there, um, if you think something's damp, just throw throw it in a few more red bags, and usually your hauler is more than happy to provide that, um, so it's uh, considered DOT packaged until it gets to the disposal site. The other item that needs to be on each box is proper labeling. So that, that requires labeling from both the generator and labeling from your hauler. Each hauler should have a, all this contact information on there, including in the contact information it should have an emergency contact number that can be reached 24-7. Um, most haulers have this set up with someone like Kentel, or there's a few other companies that have this, that if you call them, you enter in the contract, you tell them the contract number or company name that's on the box, and they have everyone in the company's contact information for any emergencies 24-7. The labeling, usually, most states require that you have the generator information uh, on the box. So, God forbid, if there's an accident and boxes go flying everywhere, take one, get the shipping papers. You should always be in the front seat, right by your driver. And two, if the boxes go flying, each box should be labeled and has a phone number. If they do have permit uh, or they have, uh, ID numbers for the generators, that should be on the box as well, and the address and names. So we like to provide that for our customers. Our driver always shows up with labels, <clears throat> so your, your employees don't have to worry about finding the labels, making sure it's packaged and on them. We know we do know some haulers that uh, won't take the box if it doesn't have the label or if it's not taped up. That's really not how we like to do business, we'll make sure we're going to help you make sure that it's perfectly packaged so you're compliant and so we're compliant and we can uh, take this out of your uh, hands. So new EPA regulations, Um, EPA is trying to come up with a better uh, standard for classifying pharmaceuticals and how to dispose of them. Uh, The goal is really to assist hospitals in handling their pharmaceutical containers and medications with a lot of the take-back programs. Uh, our Healthcare Waste Institute is involved in working with them. We actually we actually already sent in all of our questions and comments to the proposed regulations, and we're currently just waiting for them to come out with uh, another draft or a final decision. We were originally told October of 2016. Obviously, they missed that deadline, so we're kind of just waiting currently right now. And We know it takes, I mean, this is a big undertaking, so it's going to take some time. but Right now, we've been uh, told that sometime in 2017, knock on wood, that it will be coming out. Uh, The EPA also came up with some incinerator emission rates. So recently uh, on the East Coast, there's uh, one main incinerator and prices just went up because they had to put in a lot of new technology to make sure their emission rates were up to code. And that is a great thing, uh, obviously, because we want to protect the environment, but it does make incineration costs uh, go up for everyone. So if you do see rates go up for incineration, it's usually because of the emission rates and the technology that needs to be put into it. So this is always the uh, big uh, topic when you speak to customers. Uh, What should they they be looking for for medical waste contracts? What is good? What is bad? What are some red flags? So um, one thing you really need to look out for with your contracts, and this doesn't go with just medical waste. It goes with any vendor you're working with. Long-term contracts with automatic renewals, um, we're not a big fan of them. Uh, We don't understand why why companies need to lock you into doing business with them. Our goal is to earn your business every month. That's why we do have a long-term con- We'll a short-term contract for a year that automatically renews just so we don't have to bother you every year to get a new contract signed, because that has also been a pain point of some of our customers, being constantly bombarded with emails for renewing contracts or signing for new services, but the, we have a 30-day early termination clause in there that for any reason, if this relationship isn't working, we're not earning your business right, you shouldn't be doing business with us. And that's how we really think business should be run. Um, If you're being asked to sign anything for greater than three years, um, we always say that's a little bit of a red flag. You should ask them to always list out all the fees, read the fine print, um, understand how they're calculating those energy, fuel, service, pickup, overage fees. Um, A lot of customers are promised um, one certain price and then they get their invoice and it's almost double, just from additional fees. So we always ask customers, just make sure you're reading this fine print. There's a lot of additional information in there. It's hard to read sometimes, but it's worth reading into what exactly they can charge you for. You should also be monitoring your price increases by month, not by year. Um, there is currently a class action lawsuit going nationwide for one of the national companies that uh, about their price increase method. And a lot of people are realizing that some price increases are being jumped in every six to nine months rather than by the year, and it makes it actually harder to catch on your end because it doesn't make it as smooth of a transition. Say, hey, we were paying this last year, and now we're paying this this year. Now they jump it every six to nine months, so it's harder to find out what's going on. So you should be monitoring your price increases by every month just to protect yourself. We know some contracts out there have maximum boxes and pickups per year. Um, We always say that's not in your favor. A lot of these contracts... That we find customers are paying for, let's say, 80 boxes when they only really need 40. But that's just in case because the overage prices per boxes if you go over if they had a 40-box-per-year contract are drastic. So this, we see this a lot with nursing homes um, because when they have uh, patients that go into isolation, their medical waste uh, count jumps, and that's when they really get tacked on with overage fees or specialty pickup fees um, just because it's an emergency and they have... Usually they might have two boxes a week, and now all of a sudden they have 20. So you should always be looking for a per box pricing. That gives your business the flexibility you're looking for. It doesn't lock you into committing anything, and then you're not paying overage fees for anything that you might go over in a certain certain year. And finally, I'd just like to say if we can't service you, we might be able to connect you with a local hauler in your area. Uh, As Jill said, we're part of the Healthcare Waste Institute. It's a great organization full of local haulers and even national haulers. We're always looking to help write new regulations, which always seem to come up every year for new states as they're recognizing the need for specific medical waste regulations. And along with that, we just have that vast network that if you need a question, even if you're not a customer, always feel free to call us, and if we can't find it, we're going to find someone who does know the answer. There's someone, if you're in an area down in Florida and you're looking for a local hauler, just give us a call. We can ask around and see who can get you the best prices the best service you're looking for. So always please feel free to reach out. Uh, we want to be a local resource. We want to be able to answer any questions you may have. We want to make this process as easy as possible for you. We're not trying to make this any more difficult uh, than it already is. So um, as us being the experts in the industry, you need a question, we'll get you the an answer. We're not going to just uh, push you away and say we can't, ta- we can't handle it. So I really appreciate everyone's time. Um, If you do have any questions, here's all my contact information. Uh, I think Jill is going to see if we have any questions from the dashboard.
0: Yep, Matt, um, a question on how should barium and other contrast materials be disposed of, and are these supposed to be incinerated?
1: How should what materials?
0: Barium and other contrast materials be disposed of.
1: I'll have to look barium up by itself. I don't know off the top of my head. Is that a uh, pharmaceutical?
0: Yes, used in GI procedures. um.
1: Yeah, so um, if it's a pharmaceutical, it should be incinerated regardless. The only thing you're going to have
0: to find out is if it's hazardous
1: or not. And the best way to do that, like I said, is go to the SDS sheet and look under, I think off the top of my head, I think it's section 11 or section... Section 11, 12, or 13 is a transportation and disposal section, and it will let you know if it falls under a hazardous class or not. Um, if you do have the SDS sheet, please feel free to email it to me, and I can look, at, look it up and let you know how it should be disposed of. But I guarantee it's going to be incinerated either at, at a hazardous waste incinerator or a medical waste incinerator.
0: Okay. Um, how do medical waste transport companies know how to dispose of everything that's inside that medical waste box?
1: So that's a question we get a lot, and by law we cannot <clears throat> we cannot look in the box and sort through other things. Nor do we really want our employees doing that, obviously because of the risk. But what you're signing when you <clears throat> sign those shipping papers, and when it goes down as all right, we picked up one box of regulated medical waste. There's a little clause in there that says, "I hereby authorize that everything stated above is accurate to the best of my knowledge, and that's what we're generating." So we're trusting you to say that. In this entire box is only regulated medical waste, so it's really um, a trust factor between the hauler and the generator, and that's when you really need to ask to make sure you know what types of waste you're generating and make sure it's being labeled properly on these shipping papers. If you do have questions about that, you should be working with your hauler, or you can even email me, and I can help you out and find out what exactly you're disposing of and how it should be um, separated and and um, hauled out differently. And that's that's. The interesting part about this industry is, although we're taking this off your hands, um, technically the responsibility from Cradle to Grave is still yours. So if for some reason you get to, we, we bring a box of yours to an autoclave and they somehow notice that it's full of pharmaceuticals, because your name is still in that box, they're going to contact your hauler, who is then going to contact you with X amount of fees that stating that this, this box was not packaged with the correct material that you stated it was on the shipping paper. So um, when you have your, uh, either your office manager or your employees, your staff sign, make sure they understand what they're signing for. They're signing to make sure that, hey, we're generating this type of waste and it should be labeled as that on the manifest.
0: How can I be sure that the, the transporter is disposing of my medical waste according to state, federal, and local laws?
1: And what you should be looking for is, obviously, you can ask questions of where they're taking the waste. Um, they should have a disposal site on hand that they have a contract with, either one that's an autoclave, and then they're separating the incineration waste to a different incinerator or directly to an incinerator. Um, and this kind of falls into the fact that um, that I spoke about a little earlier, you can look up certificate of insurance with them, ask them for a certificate of insurance. They're not going to get insurance unless they've, unless, unless they've proven that they have a disposal facility contracted to take whatever they're picking up. So um, always feel free to ask questions. The same thing with the permits. Um, We have customers, hey, can you send us your copy of your Delaware and Pennsylvania permit just for our records? Not a problem at all. I cannot get a permit in any state without letting them know, hey, these are the disposal facilities I'm going to take it up to. I even have to have a backup disposal facility if for any reason one, uh, one facility goes down or, hey, they decided to stop taking my waste for some reason or they get backed up. So um, basically, I would say the two main um, safety uh, precautions you should take is looking up, asking them for their permit number and certificate of insurance. And if they have, bo- if they have both of those, then you should be covered and uh, trust that they're disposing of it properly.
0: Uh, how do you differentiate between what goes in the red bag versus regular trash, for example, a blood-soaked Band-Aid versus a blood-soaked 4x4 gauze?
1: So that's a tough question. Um, there is a little gray area there, but the definition of regulated medical waste is anything that could be potentially infectious. And if it's the debate between, hey, should a band-aid go in there or should some gauze go in there, we usually like to tell our clients you should be putting it in there. It's not going to take up much space. So we always tell them to be safe, safer than better, be safe than sorry. Um, but if there's a, if there's PPE that hasn't been contaminated, Um, If you just have gloves on because you're using gloves for anything in the office, but there's no visible blood or anything on them, they can go right in the trash can. Um, There's no real need to. Another thing is linens. Linens, a lot of the linen companies will um, uh, wash them, and that's considered cleaning. So you can work with a linen company. Um, All those do not have to go in the medical waste uh, bins all the time if it's obviously super contaminated. with. I don't know, a lot of nursing homes have to throw away entire bed, bed sheets if they're in isolation. Uh, we recommend, obviously, better safe than sorry to dispose of that in the medical waste box. And if you ever have specific questions, always reach out to your hauler and say, right, "Listen, I have this. Does it really need to go in the medical waste or not?" Their the goal for the hauler is to educate you on what types of waste should be entering the box. Um, that's always what we felt as our primary focus. And if we educate you, you'll understand that, all right, this needs to go in, this might not, and it's a kind of give-and-take relationship for both
0: sides. Is pulverization an acceptable alternative to incineration?
1: So this has been another hot topic, um, along with our Healthcare Waste Institute. I don't exactly know what pulverization is at the moment, but I'm assuming it's along the lines of the carbonizers out there, um, some like pyro pyrotonic, um, and not incinerators, but they smolder the waste. Uh, there's a lot of different technologies coming out that are um, not considered incineration, which is good for the industry. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. There are acceptable ways, EPA has approved a couple of them, so if they are taking it to an alternate um, incineration facility, they should have EPA permits as well to get to get uh, that, you, that you can request and find out. But this is going to be a big change for, the, for our industry. Uh, incineration rates are always going up. There's not too many incinerators left in the entire country. It's almost impossible to get an incinerator permitted just because of the emission uh, for the environment. And they're really expensive to run. So the goal is definitely to, to come up with new technology that's cheaper, more efficient, and more environmentally friendly. And some companies have come up with some acceptable ways. So you should be okay as long as they have EPA disposal permits, uh, and you should be willing to ask for them and be good to go. Um, I don't know anything specifically about the pulverizer um, offhand, but this, these new alternative technologies, we're, as an industry, happy to hopefully get a few of them up and running because that alleviates the pressure of the incinerators having to take so much waste and putting so many emissions into the environment.
0: Okay, great. Matt, thank you very much. Uh, Please use Matt's contact information on the screen for any questions, any further questions. Uh, And if you send them to us, we will forward them on to him. Your PACOM CU certificates will be emailed automatically to you from Paycom. You do not need to request it. Please join us again tomorrow for another educational webinar uh, at noon Eastern Standard Time, Cybersecurity Double Jeopardy, HIPAA and State Encryption Requirements with Todd Sexton of Identilect Technologies. You can register for this webinar and also request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at 1sthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778.